Welcome, everybody, to Who's Your Band? I am Jeffrey Paul. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Sean Morton. How are you, Sean? Jeff, I'm wonderful. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode because I have played this man's music in my car very, very loud for many, many, many years. And this is good. And he's holding one of my favorite things in the entire world, which is yeah. fucking great. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, I got it. You know, let's, let's bring him in because one good thing about doing this show is that Sean and I turn each other on to different type of music. I was not familiar with this band and Sean turned me on to him. And I got to tell you, man, uh, I have become a fan this week. Uh, we are talking about Max Illich, who is the lead singer of 40 Below Summer. How are you, Max? I'm not too bad. I mean, you know, could be better, could be worse. You know, that's life. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like said, we're, we appreciate you coming on. And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, is rock music dead? And no, of course not. You, know, you hear all this conversation. People, you know, it's always been, you know, you see articles written about it. If rock isn't dead, then who is the future of rock? Who are, who are the young bands that you think are going to bring rock music back to the forefront? Oh, I mean... I, I, honestly, I couldn't couldn't tell you like I could just tell you like like who's going to bring it back to the for forefront. I could just tell you like you know I mean there's plenty of excellent bands out there that are that are that are doing you know you know really cool things you know and and, and great sounding bands um, all over the spectrum of rock and roll, but um, and and metal and you know whatever you want to you know lump. Uh, um, you know, music into this, you know, so many subgenres nowadays, but, you know, just rock in general. I mean, I, I guess it's not as mainstream as it, as it was, I guess, in the, in the heyday of the, you know, I guess from when we were born and growing up and coming up through the, you know, seventies and eighties and stuff, you know, when, you know, when I was like, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old in the, in the late eighties, you know, um, and, you know, you, you look at MTV's, you know, countdown, you know, back when MTV actually played music, um, you know, and, you know, when you saw MTV's countdown, it was like littered with, you know, like the top 10 was littered with like hard rock bands, you know, of the Guns N' Roses, the Skid Rows, the, you know, Motley Crue's, the, you know, all those bands. And, um, you know, I guess I, I would think, you know, through like the Nirvana era when, you know, you would go in then Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam were all over the, uh, you know, the, the top 20 countdown or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not as mainstream as it was then, you know, um, I guess the last like era of me, of, of like hard rock and metal being in mainstream was probably, you know, the era that we came out in, you know, like the corn yep. Deftones, you know, that's 70. a long time ago. Yeah, that's 20, you know, that's 20 years ago over, over well, I mean, when, when, when the, that movement started in the mid nineties, that's over 25 years ago, but it didn't really hit mainstream success until like the late nineties and very early two thousands when, you know, um, you know, when like Corn and Limp Bizkit and, and, and those bands, you know, were all over, you know, and System of a Down and Disturbed were all over, you know, uh, um, you know, the radio, like modern rock radio and, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's since then it's changed, you know, to a certain extent, I guess, because you haven't had like many like platinum selling artists, multi-platinum selling artists who are all over rock radio. Um, 
as you did back then. I guess when when the movement changed in the mid two thousands to like the metalcore movement, you know that stuff was more aggressive, even you know, and you know, it just didn't you know get played as much on mainstream radio. And then I guess nowadays it's you don't really hear much like hard rock or metal on mainstream radio. I mean, you'll hear Bad Wolves, um, and, and you know more power to them. You know, I grew up with uh, with Doc and Tommy. You know, I mean, I know they split now with, um, you know, I wish all those guys the best, um, you know, because like I said, they were there. I mean, they're a few years younger than me and they were, you know, teenagers when I met them and, you know, talented young guys. And now they're doing really well, but you don't see much like, you know, bad wolves as far as like bands giving on mainstream rock and mainstream radio. And then, you know, I understand why people would say maybe rock is dead, but no, it, it'll never die. There's too many pissed off kids for rock to ever die. No, you but know? you watch, like, you know, last week you had the Grammys on. So between the Grammys and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the disrespect that rock music seems to get. So that's why I posed the question to you, you know. And well, yeah, if, but, that's, but, that's, but that's mainstream, you know, like the whole thing about heavy metal at least from the harder side of rock and heavy metal was, it was never supposed to be mainstream, you know? So that was the whole thing. Like Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, all those bands, they weren't mainstream, you know, in the beginning, they became mainstream later on after they had such a large audience that, you know, radio stations and MTV couldn't, they had to play them, you know, when a band like Metallica, you know, when, when, when a uh, master of puppets in, 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 you know, came out in 1986, and, you know, they toured with Ozzy, they toured with all these big bands, you know, but they, they never released a video. They didn't release a video, you know, for the first three albums, they didn't release a video. They, they weren't on mainstream, but the album still went, I think, double platinum before Injustice for All came out. Double platinum. Crazy, right? Like, like that's insane. You know, so when a band goes double platinum with absolutely no support from mainstream media, radio or anything, you know, it's like, OK, wait a minute, we have to. We have to support this band now because they have a, a, an army, a legion of followers, you know. And of course, once Metallica did hit mainstream, they sold 20 million records, you know. So, yeah, I, the underground is always going to be there. There's always going to be. I mean, look, even Slipknot, when they came out, they weren't getting played on the radio and MTV, you know, not like they're they're more, you know, uh, um commercially viable counterparts like you know corn or limp biscuit but slipknot you know they just tore it up on ozfest and then they were selling fifteen thousand records a week without much mainstream support so there's always going to be bands on the underground and i mean look at a band like lamb of god when has lamb of god ever gotten mainstream support uh, mainstream support yeah. they've been selling out you know large venues for the last 15 years 20 years you know, there's always going to Pantera, another band, you know, there's always going to be, you know, bands that come from the underground, but achieve, you know, major success through just a grassroots following. That's why rock will never die. That's why any kind of underground music is never going to die. There's so many bands that I think fall into that category, too, that should be so much bigger than they actually are. You know, I mean, I look at bands like Seven Dust and Nonpoint. 
and, and bands of that nature who I, you know, who consistently put out just this killer fucking great music and you're never going to hear it on, if you put on FM radio, you're never going to hear it. You might, you're going to hear it if you put it on Sirius, if you well, put on not, like, now, or, seven does, I mean, back in the early and mid two thousands, late nineties, early and mid two thousands, they got a quite a fair share of, of active rock and modern rock radio play. Um, but again, you know, radio has shifted since then. It's they, they don't play, you know, they don't play a lot. Of, I mean, you know, uh, you used to, have to find to a specialized rock. station. Mainstream uh, radio does not play rock music anymore. Well, they'll play, you know, like. They'll play rock, but it won't be hard rock. Like you know Shine Down, I mean? Foo Fighters, that yeah, kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. They'll play that stuff. That's rock and roll, but it's not, yeah. you know. It's not Seven Dust. It's not, you know, Slipknot. It's not Deftones. It's not Us. It's not, you know, yeah. Il Nino. It's not, or Christian's new band, Lions at the Gate, you know. But although Lions at the Gate has some really, really catchy songs, I, I you know, that's one band that I, I could definitely see, um, you know, definitely getting some uh, uh, mainstream yeah. uh, success. Not I even mean, not even Human is a, is a killer song. Oh, they have more radio friendly songs than that. And they have really? much heavier songs than that too. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I've heard most of the, I've heard most of the record and, and it's really good. And they nice. got some, they've got some really, really just catchy, catchy songs. Like that's that. From what I've heard, it's, that's one of those things where it's almost a no brainer to me. Like if, it, or, or, or if this doesn't hit something's wrong, Yeah, you know, area. Like, you know something's wrong in the chain. Like somebody had to drop the ball for that to not hit because it's 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 really good. It's really catchy. You know, I think I think one of the things that always irked me is that, um, you know, we have these subgenres of music and a lot of bands get lumped into these subgenres, you know, like you hear when they talk about 80s metal. And then they throw a band like Cinderella into it. And then you have grunge and they throw Alice in Chains into it. I think the whole term of new metal, which I've always despised that term. I I hate the term hairband. Yeah. I mean, first of all, music is music, you know, but that, that term new metal, they lumped so many amazing great bands into that genre. And then bands like Limp Bizkit kind of blew up. And even though like they're good and they have their fan base or whatever, a lot of people think that once you hear new metal and they identify with like Limp Bizkit or something like that, that everybody sounds like that when they really didn't at all. There was so many ridiculously good bands that came out during that that, era. That Yeah, that era of music, you know, the 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 late the late 90s and 2000s, um, you know, yeah, there were there were bands that were like. Obviously, that sounded like you know, doppelganger bands that sounded kind of like the, you know, some of the other more popular bands. But for the most part, you know, Disturbed didn't sound like Slipknot. Slipknot didn't sound like Seven Dust. Seven Dust didn't sound like the Deftones. The Deftones didn't sound like Korn. They were just, Deftones and Korn, for example, like were the pretty much the first two bands to, I guess, pioneer that movement of music and, and, Basically, their albums came out like less than a year apart in 94 and 95. And um, because there was really no kind of category to fit them and because they mixed, you know, like, you know, like a little bit of thrash metal, you know, with a little bit of that Pantera far beyond driven type of aggression. But they mixed it with 
little bit of electronic sounds, some hip hop, some, you know, just, you know, a little bit more diverse than the the metal we were used to, you know, in the 80s and, and early 90s. And um, so they just called it new metal because, you know, I, I understand why they called it new metal, but it got to a point eventually where by the late 90s, you couldn't throw a rock in any direction without hitting some sort of new metal band, you know, right. whether they were good or not. And I'm not talking about just, you know, the sign bands, you know, or the, the the touring bands that were out there. I'm talking about local bands. I mean, you know, we would go to on tour and, and you know, there would be four or five different local openers, like on a lot of these tours, you know, and a lot of these shows that we do. And, you know, a lot of them started sounding the same, you know, I mean, there were always standouts too, but, you know, it got to a point where, the, you know, there was a certain like kind of formulaic sound that, and it wasn't about sounding like Limp Bizkit. Or Wouldn't you say like, music oh, is a copycat like, business though, Max? Music has always been a copycat business. There's always going to be pioneers. And then there's going to be people that sort of, you know, ape what the pioneers are doing. But then there's also going to be, you know, people who are, there are groups who are inspired by, you know, maybe what, the pioneers were doing a little before them and then do their own take on it. And that's how you get bands like, you know, like the Slipknots and the, you know, the, the bands that came in, I guess, in the second wave of that era, you know, um, this, you know, the Slipknots and the Disturbed and the, you know, us and, and American head charged, like none of those bands sounded like, you know, the bands that came in the first wave, like the seven dust or the cold chamber or the limp biscuit, you know, or the, or, or the Deftones, like the second wave of bands, you know, that came afterwards in 99, 2000, 2001 sounded different, you know, Very um, much so. but there was, there were certain obvious influences from those, from those early uh, uh, pioneers of the movement, but we weren't trying to copy them, you know, like, you know, Mudvayne wasn't trying to copy Deftones, you know, but they came out five years later. They're sort of in the same category of music. They're both metal, but they sound different. But again, it's that movement or genre of music. But nobody can say that Mudvayne was a copycat or a ripoff band, um, or Slipknot, or 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 Disturbed, or any of those bands that came in the second wave, you know, or American Head Charge. We were just, you know. I mean, a lot of those bands also started around the same time that Corn and the Deftones. They just didn't get discovered until, you know, a few years later. But everybody, you know, but again, with those bands, you know, you you knew it was genuine. You know, whereas with some bands, that's true. You know, that's very true. You knew that that they were kind of trying to just ride the coattails or copy the genre or the style. You know, and you know, generally though, that's you know, why a lot of bands will remain local or remain, you know, unsigned. Sometimes they're very good and they're just, they won't compromise, you know, uh, you know, to get a deal or this or that, but there are some bands that are just, you got to admire you know, that, right? the ride and trying to like, you know, maybe, you know, like I said, it's not genuine and that's why they don't end up, you know, maybe getting signed or, or, or maybe they do get signed, but they don't have a real fan base or, you know, and, but that's, again, that goes with all music. You know, with every genre over the last, you know, since since popular music became a thing. Let's let's talk about your band for a second. OK, let's talk about sure. uh, 40 Below Summer. Um, I'm sure I'm glad you introduced me to this band because yeah. I think Invitation to the Dance 
is a really good album. And uh, right. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you, I want to tell you one of the reasons why I love it so much. And Max, you're, you're from Jersey, I believe. Right. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on a second. Sure, maybe we have the same opinion on this. Okay. Because I think this, this album could have, three of the greatest opening tracks like I me mean, like for for a guy like me who who was just introduced to the band recently to listen to we the people what a fucking great song to kind of like pull you in and say okay i'm sticking around for the next track and then you got rope which is hard okay but catchy and then you got uh still life at wither away i mean it's it's a great great uh, great like album. Like if I was if, if, if trying like I was again, I'm glad you introduced me to it. But I really thought this was very very impressive, well, and yeah, you know I, I'm I'm shocked that I never really got a chance to to check them out until recently. So one of the one of the things that I love this album so much for is because I mean this is <clears throat> during that period is when I had my band going. Okay, from '97 to you know 2002 ish that era, and I'm from Jersey as well. So we we got to see it from the inception. You know, we saw so many amazing bands from them first, Sean. Well, again, this going back to like the time before the album came out, we were all playing these same areas. Like we were doing shows at, you know, the old Birch Hill. We're doing shows at, you know, Connections in Clifton and Dingbats in Clifton. All these great little places. And, and you played with, you, you like would see I never this band? Play, I never played with, with Max. No, but you would see them. Oh, God, I've seen them 30 times. I mean, it's not even, oh. yeah, they're one of, my, one of my favorite bands from that era. Um, there was so much good music in this New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania corridor between 97 and like 2002. You had it was great. Below. It was fucking mind blowing because you can go out on a Tuesday night and see a show with like El Nino, the Step Kings and Disney Fist all playing together like an SOU show. And yeah, be like, the, the, the how many people era, would be like, there? Uh, it'd, be, it'd be packed. It'd be absolutely yeah, wow. by like by like by like mid late 99 when uh, um we have around late 99. Um, we started getting played on SOU. Uh, I, I remember this Disney fist. They, they got added um, maybe about three or four months to the station before we did start getting played on the station before we did. And there was a cat, a, a guy who lived around here. Um, his name was Jimmy, Jimmy Schultz. He was a, a publicist for the Aquarian and the East coast rocker. I remember you, right? And he was called the cuckoo crazy cat. That was his, yep. his nickname. Um, he's a wild dude. Like, and he, uh, he actually used to sing in, I mean, it wasn't called 40 below summer. It was called something else, but it was, and it wasn't Joey. It was, um, Carlos, our original drummer and two other guys. And Jimmy was the singer. Now I guess it didn't work out for whatever reason. Um, well, it was more metal than Jimmy. Jimmy was more into like spacey trippy rock and punk and stuff. And, you know, Carlos's band was more metal. Now, I believe right after Jimmy and, and, and you know, split ways with Carlos's band, I, you know, sort of joined. And then it only took a few, maybe two months before Carlos and I just sort of split from that band and, and started working with Joey um, on guitar. And Joe, but Joey was originally a drummer and was playing drums in two other bands. So actually getting him 
into the fold it took a couple of months. It would have happened sooner, but you know, he was like, should I play drums? Should I play guitar? Should I play drums? And then he eventually, you know, he was doing both for a while. He eventually settled on obviously guitar and, you know, touring with us for all those years. And, um, you know, from, I want to say maybe like less than a year after we were like fully formed as a band and just started playing some shows, um, that guy, Jimmy, like showed up at our rehearsal and was like, you know, your stuff sounds really good. You know, if you got any demos, blah, blah, blah. So I gave him a demo and I didn't see him again for a couple of months. And then a couple months later, he just pulled up. Like literally I was at a bus stop at my house. I was going into the city. I didn't want to take my car into the city, you know, cause the parking and shit. So I was sitting at a bus stop waiting to go in and he pulls up like right in front of the bus stop. And I didn't even recognize him at first. And he was like, I've been looking everywhere for you. You didn't put a number on the tape, you know, a phone number <laughs> on the, you know, cause it was, this was back in, in 99. So it was, you know, yeah. we were still like, you know, making like cassette dubs of our, of our, you sure. know, demos and stuff. And I gave him the cassette dub and, and he flipped out over it. And I still didn't like really believe like, cause I, I didn't know this guy all that well. Like I just knew he used to sing with my drummer, you yeah. know, eight months ago or a year ago. And, he was such a weird, crazy kind of guy, sweetheart, but you know, he's a little out there and he's like, I can get you on the radio. I can get you on SOU. I can get you a, a an article in, in the East coast rocker and blah, 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 this and that. And I'm like, okay, I gave him my info. And literally like a few days later, he like, he called me. He was like, next Wednesday, we're going to SOU and you're doing a walk-in interview. I'm like, okay. I don't know how the hell he did it. Um, but he did it because they had never even like the music director, the pro, they never even heard us. They never even heard our name. We were like literally as completely unknown as you could possibly think and imagine. And, and we never sent any music into SOU. So he actually like mailed them. They didn't even get, they, the interview was set like a week before we went in, they didn't actually get the music until like a day or two before the actual interview. Mm. So they're like in their minds, and this is their, they told us this after we got the station in their minds, they're thinking, listen, we got to do this favor for Jimmy because he's, he brought us Disney fist. Who's like popping up on the station. Now he's brought us some bands over the years and we have a good race relationship with him. But we were like, this band better be good. Cause we're like, we've never had a band walk in here unheard before and just do a sit down interview. And they actually loved the, the, the demo CD that we gave them because we actually gave them CDs, not tapes. Um, and, uh, they, you know, sat down with us, did an hour interview, played all three or four of our songs. And then almost immediately we just started getting a lot of requests. And within a few weeks we were getting played daily. And within a couple of months we were getting played multiple times every day, you know? So, it just popped off. And then with us and Disney fist, and then like less than six months after that, um, El Nino reformed as Il Nino with Christian now doing the vocals. Christian was originally the bass player yep. when George was doing vocal. Yep. And, um, that's Nino, Rizzo's band, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mark, Mark Rizzo Mark's back well. in the band now. Yeah. He, after 20 years, he's back in the band. Amazing. Right? Rizzo, you know, um, and, 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 um, Dave and Chris uh, uh, started the band, you know, as a three piece with a different singer. 
And the band completely changed when Christian took over the vocals because beforehand they didn't really do melodic vocals. It was, you know, very much more like a more hardcore sure. like New York hardcore version of Sepultura. Um, you know, uh, uh, with, with a more of a screamer than a singer. Whereas Christian could do both. He could scream and sing and he could write really Christian's always been able to write hooks. And the moment Christian joined that band, he started writing hooks for the band. Then literally they got offered a record deal after their first show as El Nino. Yep. That's amazing. Oh, dude, I, I well, we see played the, it with them. It was our oh, yeah. second time playing with them. Oh, no, sorry. It was their second show. Excuse me. We, uh, when I used to have my rehearsal studio, it was in uh, East Rutherford and our, we shared a wall. With, with Step Kings and El Nino. Step Kings and El Nino had this tiny little studio. I mean, it was, uh, Jeff, this thing was probably 10 by 10, right, Max? It was, it was fucking tiny. Well, I, 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 I've never actually been inside. I've been outside the place. <laughs> I met them outside, but yeah. I never went inside because it was just so small. Right. And then we oh. had, and we were a nobody band. We had, we were just nothing. And our studio was like four times the size of, <laughs> of the Step Kings. And our studio space was so big. We had a fucking hockey net set up at the end. <laughs> like we were, we, we were, it was gigantic. We used to have couches. We had three couches. And because we were young, we were 21, 22, we couldn't afford, you know, hotel rooms. You know, we were still living with our parents and shit. We would be going to bars and stuff, and these guys would be practicing. We would be banging chicks on the freaking couches, you know, yeah. and, and hearing all these bands just playing. It was just a fucking amazing time. I remember just fucking around with the Step Kings so bad because they would uh, they were just putting out their first record, too, and they had a great song called Friends. And it was a very simple guitar riff in the very beginning. So whenever I knew they were in there, I would just pick up my guitar and I would start jamming the intro riff to friends and you'd start hearing the fucking banging on the wall. That's my shit. That's my fucking shit. You know, it was a fun fucking time, man. It was just a great time. I, I pulled up a concert um, and I, I, unfortunately you guys weren't on the show, which pisses me off, but this is for Jeff. I mean, this genre of music was so gigantic at that time. In 2001, SOU had a concert. Uh, it was called the Riverfront Rampage. And it was a couple of days after my birthday. It was in August of 2001. And this is on one show. We had Kill Switch Engage, Lamb of God, The Misfits, Clutch, Hatebreed, El Nino, Overkill, Chimera, Shadows Fall, Biohazard, God Forbid, Propane, Primer 55, Dog Fashion Disco, another band that got that, that should have been so much bigger than they were too. Skin Lab and Among Thieves and VOD. This was on one show. Yeah, Jesus actually, Christ, how we long did the show tour, last? We, we were on tour with El Nino when that show happened. And they actually had to break off of the tour we were doing to do that. Or what day was it? It was August. Was it late August? It was like the middle of August, the 19th of August in 2001. 19th of August. I'm trying to think that. Yeah, no, we were still out on the road with them. Because um, we we toured with them. It was, I remember our first date tour uh, on the road in 2001 was July. It was July 18th or 19th. I can't remember. Either we left on the 18th and started the night. No, it was July 19th. We left on the 18th. The first show was the 19th. And we toured with, it was Factory 81, Chimera, El Nino, and us. Uh, what kind of venues were you playing, Max? On that tour? Yes. 
all they were like tiny except for when we got like i call that the hometown tour because the only decent sized venues on that tour were when we went to people's hometowns like when we played in detroit when we played in detroit which is which was uh, uh factory 81s you know we played uh, um i forgot the name of the 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 venue but it was like uh, uh like an amphitheater that held like a thousand a thousand people. It wasn't Harpo's, uh, which is Harpo's is actually a real big place. It was on the other side of town, the nice side of town. Um, and it held like a thousand people. I, I can't remember the name of the venue now. It's been so long. I love um, the fact that Max is smoking weed right now and remembers a fucking show from 21 years ago. And, and no, like that, that whole tour, like, <laughs> like when we played in like that show was good. There was like five, 600 people there when we played, like, I mean, all the shows were good. Don't get me wrong. But like, that was, a, that, that was like a pretty big show. There was like five, yeah. 600 people when we played Chimera's hometown in Cleveland, New York city, New Jersey, Philly, uh, I think I don't remember if we did Boston or Connecticut. No, we didn't do Boston or Connecticut on that tour, but we did New York. Oh no, we did Boston. Like those shows were all pretty good because us and El Nino already had a decent draw in those uh, areas too. Like obviously, you know, the, the Birch Hill show was like 800 people. Yeah. The New York city show was like 600 people. The other shows, you know, Philly, I think was like three, maybe and like, you know, the other shows like, you know, Connecticut or Boston or whatever were, were a couple hundred people, but you know, two, 300 people. But, um, most of the shows outside of those hometown shows were like 50 people. Where do you stay people. on these tours? In hotels, little, like little motels. Well, hold on, hold on. It depends because we've toured every which way from Sunday. Um, you have the options. Um, we never took the best option, which is, which was my suggestion from the beginning, but nobody ever fucking wants to listen this to is me to save money, right? You're the singer. Yeah, well, in a way, yes, to save money. We got it. We had an actually what's what was considered a, a really large touring budget um, in our contract guarantee, which was $150,000 back then. Generally, Who's giving you this contract? Uh, London Sire Warner Brothers. Okay. okay but, so, um, so the record companies are putting this up. Yeah, the uh, okay. well, you get money essentially. Like everybody thinks, when you hear somebody, "Oh, this band signed a million dollar contract." Everybody thinks, "Oh, you're rich." No, like a million dollar contract is for the the entire contract. That's the cost of making the record, touring the record, promoting the record. So generally, it's broken up into like like fifteen to twenty percent or twenty five percent intervals. So if you get a million dollar contract, generally like twenty percent of that will be a band advance which means like 150 to 215 to 20%, 150 to 200 grand, you know, which means each band member will get somewhere between 30 and $40,000 after commissions because your manager, your fucking, uh, uh, your lawyer, <laughs> taxes. They, all take, they all, they all take commission. And then yes, you have to pay taxes. Um, and, and, and of course you have, to pay the, you, have to, you have to pay them at the end of the year. You know, so a lot of band members, they don't think about a year later, they'll That's fucking right. get that money and they'll spend it. And then by the That's end right. of the year, a year later, just think about it. You get, let's say you get $30,000 after commissions, it's 22, five after taxes. It's probably only about maybe 16 or 17. Right. Jesus. So. Well, maybe it's, you know, 17, five, whatever, but at the end of, uh, uh, uh you know, a year that money's gone. And then you have to pay taxes on the 22.5. You know what I mean? So like you'll have 22.5, you'll spend, you know, 22.5 won't last you a year, you know, unless you are, 
really thrifty. Um, and I mean, now 22.5 wouldn't last you, you know, six months back yeah. then, it maybe would last you 10 months, 12, you know, two a year, but at the end of the year you're out of money and then you got to pay taxes on that, which is like five, six grand. But you do get more money if you, if you're, you know, a band that has certain amount of expectations, you can sign a publishing deal, which will get you maybe a little bit bigger of an advance, maybe 250 to 300,000, you know, but again, you have to split, you got to get commissions and then you split it five ways, then you pay taxes. So, but the way a normal record deal would break down is like I said, if it's a million dollars, so your 150 to 200 goes to the band, then another, you know, maybe 200,000 would go to marketing, you know, which would mean, you know, like advertisements, commercials, um, you know, and anything that you could think of, you know, putting, you know, stuff in metal magazines, bus benches back then. I remember you used to advertise like rock bands, new releases on bus benches, you know, and, um, you know, then you would split, you know, some money into what's called retail marketing, maybe 50 to a hundred thousand. That's when you see albums, it's called price positioning. When you see albums in the front of the stores back in the day, you know, when you'd go into an FYE or a Sam Goody or, a, you know, you know, whatever, you know, coconuts, wherever you'd go buy records back in tower records, you know, cause again, you know, the, these places were still open until 2005, 2006, 2007. So you know, price positioning. So you, when you see those albums in the front of stores, labels pay to get those albums in the front of the stores, right. you know, all that stuff adds up. And then you have, you know, tour support, you get a hundred and, you know, generally it's a hundred thousand to tour. We actually got 150, you know, so, and then there's little smaller budgets, 25,000 for an electronic press kit, $25,000 for a, a new equipment for the band, you know, then 25,000 for artwork, you know, stuff like that, you know, and eventually it adds up. It goes and quick. Those, it goes those quick. Are basically, a million dollars goes and quick. Those are basically all the guarantees that you'll get. And when you add it all up, it comes out to, you know, whatever it is, whatever the number is, if it's a 700, 800, 900 million dollar deal. So we ended up with $150,000 in tour support. And the way you break that down is you want to break that down into a weekly budget. So you have $150,000 or, or monthly, weekly and monthly budgets. So you're looking at, okay, if you're touring, most bands, they rent their vehicles, right? So the budget what did you for guys rent, do? we rented, which was stupid. I said, we should buy a vehicle right from the beginning. Um, well, like when you say a vehicle, like a van or, or a mini truck, an RV tour bus, you can buy anything that you want. If you, if you're, if you're smart enough and figure out how to work, you know, how to work a deal. Did you guys um, have a manager? Yes. And a business manager, someone who would take care of this for you? Or was this all worked out amongst the band? No, no, no. We had a man, we had a manager and we had uh, an attorney and eventually we had a well, business manager is just a fancy name for an accountant. Uh, you have, you have a, a personal manager who th that, that's the person that like negotiates, you know, like with the record company to get you your deal, you know, and they, they'll negotiate with the publishing companies and they'll work with your booking agent. Now, these are the people that have your, their hands in your pocket. You have a manager, an attorney, an accountant, and a booking agent. And that's basically the people that have their hands in your pocket. Well, you need you need so, that account because you need you, know, well, you, you can do. have a million dollars. A manager generally in, will take a, a manager will go, going out. A, a manager will generally take fifteen to twenty percent of your uh, of whatever goes in the band's pocket. So, meaning if you get a million dollar record deal, 
the only thing that the manager commissions is the pocket advance portion of the record deal. So like if you, if you sign a million dollar deal and your pocket advance is 200,000, your manager is only going to take commission on the 200,000 because they can't take commission on tour support. They can't take a commission on marketing money that the record's going to spend to promote. They can't take a commission on the video budget. They can only take a commission on what goes in your pocket. So basically pocket advances. And then what you, what, what you make from, um, touring from shows. Are they working exclusively with you or do they also have other clients? No, they'll always have other clients. Like you okay. want a manager that has other, you know, uh, clients. You want a manager that has, you know, like we, the manager we signed with was the, was the, were the people who signed with, uh, who managed Slipknot. Um, it was actually clown from Slipknot who got us, you know, kind of in that door. He heard our demo. He liked it. He wanted to introduce us to the, to the management company. But my, my point being is, is that when we tour, you know, you want to break down that, like I said, we had $150,000. You want to break that down into a weekly budget in this various different ways. So you can tour in a tour bus. That's the most comfortable by far, obviously, but it's also the most expensive, uh, you know, and now back then it's mo way more now from what I understand it's 20 years later, but back then a tour bus generally ranged from about four to $500 a day, um, plus an additional $200 a day for a driver. It's expensive. You know, when you add and that you're up, also it's responsible for fuel. And yes, you're responsible for fuel, maintenance, bus washes. Um, the bus has a generator. You have to change the oil on that generator. Also, when you're touring, you have to change the oil on the bus itself, the engine, you know, of very, you know, very often because you're, you're doing, you know, a ton more miles, you, you know, like, most, most people who drive regularly normally put a thousand miles a month on their car. You're, you're putting like probably 1500 or so miles, 2000 miles a week on this bus. So, you know, or whatever vehicle that you're driving, you know, so, but if you tour with the tour bus, the way we broke it down was it was about, depending on the size of the crew, it could range from eight to $10,000. You know, when I mean crew, you're, 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 your road crew, your, 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 your roadies, it could range from eight to $10,000 a week. So then if you rent an RV, it would range from 5,500 to 6,000 a week. Um, depending on the size of your, actually five to 6,000, depending on the size of your crew. And if you rent a van, it's going to be anywhere from like four to 5,000 a week. Um, depending on the size of your crew. Now, you will get a little bit of money coming back in um, from doing shows, but in the beginning, it's very little. You know, your first probably six months to a year doing shows, you're making one to $500 a show. It doesn't bring that much money back in for the band to, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, supplement, you know, your, 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 your tour support. So that way you can stretch your tour support, because if you think about it under any single one of those circumstances, $150,000 is only going to last you anywhere from like 24 to like 35 weeks. That's not a lot of touring. And then you're no. out of tour support. So that's why it's like, even though 150,000 is considered to be a lot, it really isn't. When most bands are getting, you know, that's why a lot of bands would buy their own van. 
But the problem with buying your own van or touring with a van in general is it gets so cramped and very uncomfortable, especially when you have those really long drives. Because sometimes you can't route a tour where everything is like consecutively set up where you're only doing two to four hour drives. Sometimes you have to do, you know, that 500 mile drive overnight. You know, you finish a show, you're out at one in the morning, and then you have to be, you know, around noon, one o'clock the next day, 500 miles away. And if you don't have a bus and you're driving yourself in a van, you're fucking exhausted. Sure. Who's driving the van? Is it a band member or a manager or who who drives the van in that case? Everybody. Everybody takes turns. Crazy. You know, now the more crew you have, the more people there are to drive. So the band can drive less and you can, you know, pay your crew maybe a little bit more to drive a little bit more. But the more crew you have, the more smashed you are in that van. If you're in a bus or an RV, you can at least move around, you you know, um, and at least have more places to sleep. Um, My plan was we should have bought an RV, um, not a van, an actual RV. But what you do is you take a third of your tour support, which is $50,000, and you um, put it down on, let's say, an $80,000 or $90,000 RV. You want to get one with a diesel engine so it'll last longer. It might cost you a little more. Um, and you know, don't get, and here's the other thing, don't get what's called what I call bus envy. And that means you try to get the biggest RV you can, you know, so it's like a bus. No, no, just listen, get the, get the best deal you can for the money. And this is back then again, it's it's probably nowhere near viable today because deals are different nowadays, but you know, get a, a reasonable size RV and you finance out the rest where you're you're paying it monthly. But it comes out to maybe a thousand dollars a month versus five hundred dollars a day or three hundred dollars a day or four hundred dollars a day. It's a lot less money. Then when you break down your your budget, your budget's only about three thousand dollars a week. When because you're not paying all this money for a vehicle rental. You're only paying two fifty a week. The rest of the money can go to your crew, your per diems, gas, tolls, and hotels. Comes out to barely over three thousand a week. Now with a hundred thousand dollars, you can turn that into thirty three weeks of touring, with the money coming in about five hundred to a thousand dollars a week from guarantees. You can stretch that out into forty five or so weeks of touring. Then with a few breaks in between tours, that's a full year. So Max, let's let's talk about the human side of this now. Okay, so now you're touring like this. You're on a van. You're on a on a. On a we on a, on a, every which way. The only thing we didn't do was buy the RV. We but we gotcha. rented an RV. We rented a van. We rented a bus, and then eventually on the second record we bought a van. Okay, and yes, so, we saved a ton of money doing that. Okay, we so, now, so, so now you're doing this constantly. You're doing these long drives. Is it hard getting along with band members? Like, I mean, especially touring. Do they get on your nerves? Well, of course, you know. When you're in a bus, when you're in a bus, you can at least isolate yourselves when necessary. Whereas within a van, you can't. And, you know, when you're in a van, look, when you're in a bus, you don't really have to get hotels. Um, That saves you you money. You generally, you you generally might want to get, or even in an RV or a bus, you might want to get, you know, one hotel room a week as like, as like really like a shower room. 
Yeah, because they, well, you, you, can you, venue? you can also go to truck stops and, 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 you know, get shower rooms for $5. So there's, there's plenty of different options, but, and there's plenty of truck stops that have nice, clean, very nice, clean shower rooms. You know, I would just recommend wearing flip-flops. You don't want to get athlete's foot. Um, <laughs> other than that, like, you know, there's, there's lots of, you know, little things, you know, you learn and stuff on the road, but you know, when you're in a van, you're going to get more hotel rooms and you're going to like stop at hotel rooms and, and you'll at the very least get two or sometimes three hotel rooms a night, you know, because you have, we're generally three hotel rooms a night because you're going to be at least, you know, six or seven guys between the band and the crew. So you're going to need three rooms and a cot. So, you know, because you get six beds with three rooms and then with a cot, you know, you can put that seventh guy in a cot, you know? Um, and yeah, you're a little less isolated because, you know, you got to share a room with someone, you got to, but, and you're smooshed together in the van, but you know, you do get, when you get to the venues and stuff, you do get breaks from each other. When you get to your hotel rooms, it's, you know, yeah, you pair off, but, Still, as opposed to six, seven people being on top of each other, it's only two people to a room or whatever, you know, so there's still ways. But of course you're going to get, I mean, you get on each other's nerves in a bus too, you know, it's just, that's just the way it is. You, you, sure. you know, you live with someone, you get on each other's nerves. When you live with six people, people are going to get on each other's nerves. It happens. Do you ever think about going into the, into the business uh, aspect of music because you're the way you've been describing everything is you, you are really on top of your shit as far as the monetary I aspect of being I, 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 I guess I would, but I guess the opportunity has never really presented itself. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that yes, I, I could probably be an A and R person for a record label. I could probably manage a band. I could probably, you know, do any number of those things. Um, but I guess the opportunity has never presented itself. Um, and that I remember, be, and, um, and what I mean by that is, is like, I guess the right band. I've never, you know, I do also have a, a, my own studio and I engineer and produce. So I, I am involved in, in that side of the business outside of my own band as well. So, you know, there is that, but I mean, um, I guess nobody from a record label has ever said, Hey, Max, would you want to come work A and R or this or that or marketing or whatever? I don't know. That, 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 that would never and, happen. And, and no band that I, I guess has really ever asked me to manage them. So, <laughs> you know, and, and there's never been a, I guess, I mean, I, uh, there's a couple of bands that I've, you know, that I've seen over the years that I've been impressed with or whatever, but, I guess the thought never occurred to manage them. You know, maybe it was geography, maybe it was timing, maybe it was, I don't know, you know, but I've never actually, I guess the opportunity really has never presented itself to be in that side of the business. Although I, I am pretty sure that I could, I could do the job. <laughs> You're, oh, absolutely. You, you paint a very realistic picture of touring and everybody has like, you know, this glamorous image of it. And like, we, we know what, what touring entails. Well, it depends so, on what, on what like glamour is. I mean, like, yeah, if you're, if you're look, if you're Lincoln park, okay. Because Lincoln park was like big before they were, their album was even out. Like there was so much advertisement for that band. Yep. Their album debuted and did almost 50,000 copies first week. Like, 
they were all over. They were like top 10 on, 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 on all rock radio stations. Like by the time that like the, the, the record was released, you know? So like that band, they, they never like actually had to like, like, to, like, but that's not band. every band. I mean, that's no, the guys, no, that's saying, the guys that, who made that, that's it. That's a you rare guys situation. Are, are, are the grassroots I mean, guys. Listen, Lincoln Park got a big deal and were pushed to, you know, to the heavens, but you know, there's been lots of bands that have gotten big deal, gotten pushed and it didn't pop off. And the label wasn't going to just dump a shit ton more money in them. Lincoln Park popped off right away. The moment that first song hit the airwaves, oh, yeah. it just started climbing the charts. So like, you know, they wrote that, those hits, like that's just plain and simple. Lincoln Park, just they, they were a hit machine yeah. and they, they like the moment that song hit, it popped off. So the label had every justification to be like, okay, you guys are going to be touring like, you know, in a nice bus from day one, you know? And, yeah. you know, because again, it's like, you also have to look at it from the label's perspective. And, and here's what a lot of bands, cause you see a lot of bands are complaining because the label doesn't want to like, this is in our era. I'm not talking about today. Um, in our era, you'd see a lot of bands and hear a lot of bands, including our own band at times when the label was saying, look, we just, you know, we can't afford to keep you in a bus anymore because it's costing, you know, 8,000 a week. It's costing us 8,000 a week or 8,500 a week or whatever it was. And, you know, I, I forgot who it was, but there was somebody who explained it to me properly. And this is, you know, very early on. and but it was somebody in the business and said, well, how many records are you selling? And this was, you know, maybe less than a year after I think invitation came out, maybe like eight, nine months. And we were selling maybe a thousand records a week. And he goes, okay, well, the thousand records a week that you're selling is generating for your label about five fifty to uh, $6 a record. So that's 5,500 to $6,000 a week. They're not going to pay $8,500 a week for you to be in a bus. They're fucking losing $2,500 a week. That's right. Yeah. That's right. If you, if, if you want to go to your label and demand that, 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 you know, that, or not demand, but like, you know, ask for them to, you know, keep footing this kind of touring budget for you every single week, you have to be selling at least that much every week in record sales. So meaning you've got to be selling 1500 to 2000 records a week, somewhere in that range for you to be going to your label and saying, you know, keep us in a bus. If I, not, I, you know, get, get back in a van and keep your budget down. A hundred percent. I used to work in A&R for CBS and I worked on, I worked in A&R finance. Okay. So I, I was the go between, between the bands and CBS's accounting department. So I would see the budgets that these bands would get. And, you know, you, you'd be, amazed at how much they would just waste money on takeout food delivery on cabs and, and or cost services things that didn't really contribute to the record and the thing is that these bands didn't realize is that you're not getting paid until the record company makes back its investment and oh no 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 that's actually not true you're not getting paid no, no, you're not getting paid until way after that. Well, this is how the, this is why record deals are, 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 were always big scams and they're even worse nowadays. Um, everybody thinks that, okay, I'll give you an example. I can use Mudvayne as a good example. 
because Mudvayne was a hugely successful band. Um, I mean, well, not hugely. They were they were a big band, like huge to me is like Slipknot, you know, Metallica, like that. that's huge. But Mudvayne was big. Like, believe me, we toured enough with them. They were headlining two thousand seaters and packing them, and they were making you know thirty to fifty thousand dollars a show. They were making plenty of money, you know, in that range. You know, maybe even more. I don't know. Like, but but I know generally from touring that those kind of bands, you know, like when you're at the Metallica level, you're making Jesus Christ quarter of a million to a half a million here in the States. And they make like 2 million, 3 million per show over, over in Europe, but like those kind of numbers, but, but Mudvayne was very successful band and playing the, you know, big crowds. But you look at a band like that, for example, right. They get, they signed a million dollar dealer and the first record and the record does well. So the label actually, doubles down and invest even more. They put nearly 2 million into the first record, right? And the first record sells 600,000 copies, which is big. It's a gold record plus, and then some. So the label, the records generally back then were selling for 10 to $12, you know, 10.99, 11.99, 12.99, depending on where you went. And the label was generally getting about half the money, like so between like five fifty and six dollars, you know. Um, so you look at six hundred thousand record sales, they make you know, and a standard record deal works like when you sign the deal, they give you the upfront money, that million dollars that you break down, however. And the way it works is for every album, you get fifteen cents, twelve to fifteen cents is generally. You know, and I know Mudvayne was with Steve Richards, like we were, like Slipknot was the manager. So they were probably getting closer to 15%. So 85, 15, right? So, but the label doesn't get paid. Uh, you don't get any money until the label gets back their investment. But there's a catch. So the total revenue coming in would be about out of like, let's just say a $10 album would be like, you know, 550 to the label, you know, uh, uh, two to the distributor, two to the, or three to the distributor, or two to the store, two to the distributor, and then like $1.50 to the band, right? So the label gets, you know, just approximately $6 a record. And after 600,000 records, they made $3.6 million. So they've profited 1.6 million, right? So you, they've been paid back. The band should now, since $2 million, once the label got paid back their $2 million, the band should be getting $1.50 a record, right? No, that's not how, where the label gets paid back from. The label gets paid back out of your $1.50 a record. So 600,000 records sold, you've paid them back $1.50 a record. That's 900,000 out of 2 million. You still owe them 1.1 million. So what does your manager do for the second record? He goes and asks for $2 more million. You're never going to pay back the label. Not unless you're selling records like a Lincoln Park. It's where like you're selling compound interest. Exactly. You never pay like a band like Mudvayne when they, after the fourth album, when they, they owed the label like 7 million to six, 6 million. So, like they're never paying them back. It's like the TLC, the band made, TLC. The label made plenty of profit. Oh yeah. The band TLC, they were one of the biggest pop bands of, of the nineties. And they wound up being like 18 to $20 million in the hole. And you think these bands yeah, but, but the label having, can't, but, but here's the thing. The label can't take that money from you. 
It's not like the label can come after you and say, well, you owe us $18 million, whatever it is, yeah. like, or 800000 or $2.2 million. You can't. They can't. They just you drop know? It. They can't. They're, they're making money. They don't care. They don't care. The thing is, is when you when a band loses their money, that's when they drop you, or that's when they... Well, that's it. If you don't, especially, especially on the first record, if you if you don't turn a profit for them in that first record, like of course a million dollars, you bring in three hundred fifty thousand, and I'm using a band called New Man that I'm using that using that uh, example. They were this band out of Boston. They won like the, the, all the competitions, and that they got a record label. You know, they sold like something like uh, six thousand units, and they were dropped immediately. Oh yeah, I mean. You know, it happens with a lot of different, you know, artists. I mean, you know, they they just don't sell. And I mean, in a way, it actually didn't really happen to us. Like, it happened to us in a different way, though. Yeah, like we, I want to talk about that. Well, we signed our record deal. Who did you sign with? London Sire Warner Brothers. Okay, major label, great label. Yeah. And... We signed the deal in March 2001. We went to make the record. Um, well, actually, we signed the deal in February, like late February 2001 or early March. By the middle of March, we were in L.A. making the record. And everything went fairly smoothly making the record. We came home. We were, you know, gearing up to tour. How long did it take you to record the album? Two, two months. Okay. And, and, that was, and that was a big waste of money. Well, not a big waste of money. I shouldn't say that. Um, it was a great experience, but we wasted a lot of money. Like we could That's have easily, happens. we could have easily saved about between 50 and $75,000 and still kind of made the same record. How, uh, how could you have saved that money? Do it in less time? Uh, no, uh, by not flying everyone to, by not flying everyone to the most expensive studios and the most expensive like places, and hotels, not, like hotels in, in LA, we could have all done the record in New York city and it would have been a lot cheaper to do it in New York. Who chose to do it in LA? Um, our managers. They wanted us out in LA. And look, the truth of the matter is, is they wanted to use up the budget anyway. But the truth of the truth is, is we could have ended up being doing the record in New York, being under budget. And don't get me wrong. I like the experience of going out to LA. It was a lot of fun, but in hindsight, staying at home, saving, you know, 60, $70,000 making the record and then using that money somewhere else, especially given what ended up happening. Um, but again, you know, hindsight's 2020. Um, we made the record, we came home and then problems started happening. Like our bass player, Hector had an accident on stage. He slipped and fell and tore his ACL. We had to delay our, our initial touring. Um, and then when we did start touring a month later than we were supposed to, we had to do it with a replacement bass player for over a month. Then when Hector came back, he was only about two and a half months removed from his surgery. So he was still really hobbled and it took him about another six months or so to get, you know, to maybe where he was about 75 or 80%. Um, but, um, Somewhere around, I want to say it was because the record came out in October, October 16th of 2001. And I want to say it was somewhere around mid, late November. And the record was selling fairly well. Um, it did uh, a little over, I don't know, 
3,500 copies, a little over 3,500 copies the first week. And then um, the subsequent weeks after that, it was, I believe, doing about around 2,000 records a week. Um, pretty much through New Year's um, and even a little more over the holidays. And um, we were doing well on, on active rock radio. We were actually with falling down, which wasn't really even supposed to be like a single. It was just supposed to be like kind of an introduction song. Cause it, it sort of encompassed the whole sound of the band in one song. Um, and it was just a unique and, and interesting song. And it had some very catchy parts. The song did way better than expected. And it was charting, you know, near the top 35 on active rock inside the top 40, which is really good. Um, and then it was sometime around like Thanksgiving, about six weeks after the record was out, when I heard some rumors from certain people in the industry that were not from our label or our managers or, or anything like that, just people, you know, like I had made some friends already at that point and I was getting calls saying, oh, London Sire might be folding. And I'm like, excuse me? They've been a label for 50 years. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, Warner Brothers owns them. September 11th, everybody panicked. You know, the economy took a big hit um, after September 11th for a while because people were scared. And radio stations started, remember Drowning Pools Let the Bodies Hit the Floor was a huge single. Radio yep. stations started pulling it right exactly. after September 11th. You know, I don't know how our song Falling Down actually stayed on the radio, which was really surprising <laughs> to me. Because you guys flew under the radar. But uh, like American Head Charge, you know, who were, you know, good friends of ours. And we were all under the same, they were also with the same management company as us. And we had toured with them a bunch already. Their pro promo, I don't know if anybody remembers their original promo posters of Uncle Sam with two black eyes. Like, like yeah. stuff like that. Like you know, like the, all those promos were being pulled. Like, so everybody was all panicked and we heard that London Sire was in trouble and that Warner brothers might pull the plug and fold the label. So we called one of the guys, like one of the marketing or radio guys from the label, because I went and told the band and I, I had heard it from more than one source. We called the label. They were like, no, what are you talking about? Then literally like three weeks later, four weeks later, this was a little before Christmas. We get a call from our managers, London Sires folding January 1st. Holy shit. So that means we had, didn't uh, have a label anymore, yeah. but we weren't even like, even that fortunate. <laughs> we were in what's called limbo. Because Warner Brothers owned London Sire, which means technically they owned the rights to our contract. They didn't even know who we were. Wow. They folded of not just London Sire, they folded Giant. They folded a whole bunch of now. Obviously, when you fold a label like Giant, you're gonna keep Disturbed, who was a big band, but that was Giant, you know, which was a part of Warner Brothers. Was Disturbed was the only reputable, like big name act that they had. All the other bands got dropped. Like for us, London Sire, there was only like Portishead and, you know, I really, that's about it. I mean, I, I don't think Fun Loving Criminals was even a band anymore by that point. Oh, you local know, New York band. But they, I remember they, they went on tour with someone really big. Was it, was Stones. it the Stones? Stones, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember, sure. I, I, remember but, I was on that but, tour and I, rem I remember uh, seeing those guys. Sire, they were great. The thing is, 
the thing is London Sire hadn't had a hit in a long time. Like their big hits were like ice tea in the eighties and Madonna, Madonna first. And then ice tea. Like, and after that, they hadn't really had much. And listen, Madonna put out several hit records for London Sire as did ice tea, probably through the early nineties. But by the early nineties, you know, aside from Portishead, which was, I think 94 and they weren't really a hit. They were, they had like a cult following, you know, and they were popular, but they weren't like mega huge hit like Madonna, you know, and fun, same thing with fun, loving criminals. They had a following, like a good following and they had some, some mainstream success, but they weren't multi-platinum selling artists like Madonna. So, you know, London Sire was, you know, in debt to Warner brothers, a pretty good amount because like any label, they signed lots of acts and put lots of money into them. And most of those acts didn't do well. They're naked ladies, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They were on on side. So that was one other pretty big. The cults, the cults, Cindy Lauper were on this label. Yeah. But that's the eighties. Yeah. 80s and 90s like like 80s into the early 90s London Sire did very well from like the early 90s on they didn't do that great I I know that there was there was an eight like a, a pretty high eight figure debt um, between London and, and Warner Brothers uh-huh. so they folded the label January 1st and pretty much all our funding was cut and then we sat in limbo for about I don't know about three months and then uh, there was an A&R guy down at Warner Brothers who, who it was re- the reprise because it was Warner reprise. There was the reprise side of Warner and he liked us and he wanted to try to push us down at the label. But it became like the, well, we want to push you, but we don't want to push you the way London Sire wanted to put you, push you because we don't really know you. And it, you know, so just get in the van, no bus. And this is when like those arguments, you know, with the band, like, why can't we have a bus? Well, we're, we're selling 900 records, 950 records a week, which generates barely $5,000 a week. And you're asking for close to $9,000 for a bus, $8,500, like a weekly. It's just, it's not going to happen. So that's where we were in that boat. You know what I mean? You know, because even though we hadn't used up all of our contracted tour support, our contract with London Sire was null and void. This was Warner brothers, even though they owned the contract, they didn't have to honor it technically. Hmm. That's got to just just really crush you though. After putting all these, dude, it was very demoralizing. Yeah. I mean, you're putting all these years into, into forming your band and putting out, you know, writing this fucking amazing record. And that's just right, right. When the record starts to really pop, like it was getting, it was leading into the wither away was going to be the single. And the plan was, was we were actually right after Thanksgiving, like the plan was, um, I want to say it was like the first week of December, we were supposed to go to, uh, LA and film a video with the, the, they they were called the brothers Strauss. They did a lot of videos back then. Like, I know they did a power man 5,000 video that were, you know, popular and they were supposed to do a video for wither away. And we had a big budget and London sire was going to push the song, you know, you know, to, you know, every rock station you could think of. And the label folded, it never happened. So then when we got into our thing with reprise Warner, they basically, 
they gave us essentially enough money to do that Jägermeister tour. Mm -hmm. And we did that Jägermeister tour in a bus. And our record was selling a little more than maybe it was selling 1200 records a week, 1300 records with something like that. And that was just enough to keep us in that bus. And then in between the Jaeger tour and that's, we did a static X run um, about half of the run because then there was a, a big band fight. We almost broke up and. Uh, what caused that fight? Uh, Basically, it was the bus, the this, the lack of a single. And then we were being lied to in so many directions. Like the managers, our managers were lying to us. The label was, you know, the label was actually being lying to about money. About money, but also about like just other stuff. It was hard to like, they were telling us like, basically they were making shit up to like get us basically like they told us a lie. It was something like, all right, you can have the wither away big single, or you can keep touring one or the other. If the mm. single pops off, they'll put you back out on the road. That's a lot of fucking pressure. If you think so about we it. were like, all right, let's go with the single because we believed in the song. It's a that was a song. lie. The label never actually said that to us. They assumed that we would say, no, we want to keep touring. But the truth of the matter is, is that like, if the song really popped off, the record would, would, really start to sell and we'd be touring anyway if we could tour you know to the high heavens and not really sell any more records you know i mean sell a little bit more but not a lot more but in, in hindsight we you know we should have just kept but but the thing is is it was a lie because then our managers called about all right well they said they're not giving you the single you just you know you can tour but you have to tour in a van and then we had this big argument and this and that and, and you know it was just whatever but it just got the got to the point where the argument was was certain people in the band were screaming at each other and you know it was like it got unnecessarily like you know loud and aggressive to the point where you know people were like you know i, I don't want to play with you anymore I don't, like you know but the, it was resolved but not in a timely enough fashion where we could finish that static x tour let me ask you this mac before we uh uh, wrap this up what does the future hold for 40 below summer and yourself well i own my own studio and i've expanded a, a decent amount over the last you know 15 years or so and uh you know we, we're, we're sort of self-sufficient we have our own little music group record label and we have our deal with a a1 uh e1 um, which used to be Koch and they can distribute our stuff. It goes right to iTunes, right to this, right to all the, you know, uh, Spotify and this, all the, the streaming places. And um, so we're kind of set up in that way where we can just make music and it doesn't really cost us much, um, you know, upfront, maybe a little bit of money for editing, you know, um, cause I produce an engineer and mix, but I don't edit. And then a little bit of money for mastering and a little bit of money for artwork. It's not that much money. And then we can, you know, just put the music out. Um, and yeah, I mean, for special orders, we can ship out CDs and we'll print up, you know, a couple thousand CDs and send them out. Um, no major distribution or anything like that, but digitally anybody can get our record, you know, for however, in whatever fashion they want, whether they want, whether they want to stream it, whether they want to download, you know, their own copy, you know, um, it's accessible now moving forward. Um, I think it's time, you know, and, and, you know, mostly 
uh, Joey was, you know, is, is the one who, who, who really like brought this to our attention for, we want to try to like move into the new age a little bit more. Um, and maybe try like, you know, setting up our own like channel and having subscribers who will maybe subscribe to our channel for, you know, whatever it is, three ninety nine, four ninety nine a month. And we'll set up like a live, you know, streaming, you know, like system in our room because our, our room's pretty nice. You know, it's, it's a recording and a rehearsal room, but it's, it's nice. And, and, and it's got nice ambience and, and, and we can set it up and, and do like, live streaming, live playthroughs, live rehearsals, live shows, you know, in that room. And then we have an even bigger room right next door to us. Um, it's a building manager's room and he's a friend of mine, friend of ours. And we can literally do like, like soundstage shows in there. And, um, we can do like a, a live playthroughs of our, you know, the drums and the guitar and all this stuff, you know, and if we can generate, I mean, we have close to 30,000 followers on uh facebook we only have a couple on instagram but you know i'm sure if we pay a little more attention to our other formats um we can get those numbers up and if we can get a thousand subscribers you know that's <laughs> four to five thousand dollars a month listen there's there's comics who are doing patreon who are, who are pushing their podcasts just solely on patreon and there's one in particular I'm not going to say his name. He's a very popular comic. If you go on their pages on Patreon, scroll down to the bottom. It tells you how many people are subscribing to it. This fucking guy's making $185,000 a month by putting out an exclusive podcast episode a week just on Patreon. Yeah, well, we can do that type of shit. We, yeah. can, we, can, we can do a 40 below podcast once a week where it doesn't even have to be every band member. It can some weeks just be me and Joey, some weeks me and Anthony. I'll always be there, but it can be, you know, some weeks, you know, the three of us, some weeks, all of us, you know, because Joey and Anthony live the closest, so it's easiest, you know, for them to be there. But like, we can do lots of different things, you know, and then we can do other stuff. Like when some of our friends come, like if Christian comes into town, I can have Christian come sit in on our podcast. Or, you know, when Rizzo's around, great. you know, we can have Rizzo because Rizzo's going to probably sit in and, and guest uh, do a guest solo on our record. Um, we had him on the podcast until his phone died. <laughs> I love Mark. Mark's a great dude. Mark is a great yeah, dude. Like, <laughs> I want to know about the new. I want to know about the new music. Those guys. I want to know about the new music before we uh, wrap this up. When are we? When can we ex uh, expect? Some well, new actually, music? we finally have a little bit more of a of a defined date for our new music, um, okay. because uh, uh, we were really planning on starting to record in the summer of 2020. That was the initial plan. We had enough songs and we felt at the time that those songs were good to go. And starting in the spring of 2020, when we were getting near ready to start recording, the pandemic hit. So then we all figured, oh, there's no point in recording right now. Who knows when this pandemic's going to end? And, you know, because it was supposed to be two weeks in the beginning. And by June or July, it was like, come on now. Yeah. But who knew when it was going to end? Well, by 2021 in the spring, it still hadn't ended, but it was like, okay, maybe let's record now, you know, sometime in the, in the spring, you know, summer of 2021, but then some other stuff happened and it didn't end up working out. We had surges and shows got canceled and uh, whatever. So 
finally we got to this most recent you know time we had the flooding and that's what a lot of people like who've been following us on facebook um and instagram have seen is that we had some flooding at our studio when um that hurricane hit last Um, august what what last august last august yeah what was the name of the hurricane though ida yeah or something like that so whenever it hit um I believe it was the end of August. We got some pretty nasty flooding and we ended up it. And it took months just to get the landlords at our studio to like, you know, figure out where the flooding was coming from, how it was coming in, blah, 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 this and that. So they eventually fixed it, but they didn't fix it until like probably like close to November. And then, and when they did fix it, we had to like take all of our stuff out of the, um, out of the studio, like, or not out of the studio, but a lot of our stuff out of the studio and then push the other stuff all into the middle of the room so they could get to the walls. Cause it was all coming from the back wall because the back wall of our room is actually the outside of the building. So there was leaking coming in from the outside. So they fixed some stuff from in our room and then they went to the outside and they fixed stuff from the outside, but it took a couple of months. And by the time they finished around November, um, the, the, the building itself is kind of run down. It's just an old warehouse that they converted into a bunch of rehearsal studios. You know, it's, it's literally like, probably 20,000 square feet. So they may ended up making like 50 rooms that range from like three to 500 square feet. Now ours is one of the biggest closer to 500 square feet. We've also been there the longest by far. Um, the room, uh, uh, was just run down though. Like, I mean, and as opposed to running paint on it and it was all concrete floors that, you know, you have to paint over the concrete floors, but they get so scuffed up and sticky and nasty immediately. Like within a month or two, it, it looks like it, you know, it, it did, you know, before they painted it again. So luckily the building manager from next door was a friend of mine goes, I have a bunch of uh, panel flooring in storage. So we fixed up the, the the room with the panel flooring. And then I went a little haywire. I went and just got all this material and started covering the walls. Instead of painting stuff, I put like carpeting all over the walls and it just looks much nicer. And it, you know, and it, and it just keeps the place much cleaner and it just looks great. But it took another couple of months. So then it wasn't until like January, almost February, when we were able to even get back in the studio again. And by that point, it's 2022, it's two years later. Some of the songs in our eyes had become stale, so we wanted to try to work on some new songs. And then it was just a little bit of knocking off some rust because we hadn't been in the studio for months. It was also just getting some of our ideas out of the way um, that weren't going to work to get to the ones that were. And we've, you know put together a new song and we got another new one that we're about to finish and possibly another cover song that we're going to do. I want to know the covers. I want to know the cover song. Well, Ooh, I don't know yet. Okay. There's, there's, what are you talking couple, with? There's Come a couple on. of different ideas and I'm not going to throw them out there until we decide which one. Okay. Can um, I throw one? Can I throw one in the mix? Uh, okay. I guess. <laughs> yes. Because I wanted to cover this song 
for 25 fucking years and I never did. And my guitar player just sent me a really rough version of it. And it's, it's, it's good, but I want to do it really well. I want to do pressure by Billy Joel. Yeah. That's one that I wanted to cover. The problem was, was one other guy in our band really wanted to cover it too. But the other two guys were like, eh. I love the song because I, I think, think that, that that keyboard part lends itself to a great guitar riff. Thank you. See, this is this is what New Jersey singers do, Jeffrey. We bring the fucking knowledge to these goddamn bands, and the bands don't want to fucking listen to it. Well, just think about it. You could take you could you could take that Billy Joel riff, that turn it into like Pantera shedding skin. You know, I mean you can just gotta record this. You gotta record these. I get these other two guys on board and record this. That's a great idea. And then the drums, and then the drums would obviously, you know would play different than, you know, the more poppy style drums, 80s style drums that Billy Joel did. You would do more, you know, of a halftime breakdown, you know, metal kind of thing. So I, I get it. But the, the point is, is that we have these few ideas that we're going to work out. And finally, we actually have a, a, a recording, a basic recording date, which is probably going to be give or take a week. It could be the week before, or it could be the week after, but we're thinking starting Memorial day weekend, we're going into the studio to make this record. Band fucking tastic. It's about time. Record. It really pressure. is about time. Record yeah, I can't pressure, wait. please. I just well, want to say that's one not, thing. that's not, that's actually not one of the finalists because, you know, but look, I, you know, I, maybe I could, could, who knows? Look, we have, some other ideas. Um, I want to sit down with the guys and just, you know, maybe try to hash them out, you know, just little quick sketches of each one and see which one fits with the material we already have. So, you know, it's, it's going to be good though. I could just tell you the new, the new song that we just laid down is really cool. Um, and the other idea that we have is, 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 I think it's going to be really cool too. Um, they're both very catchy. They're, they're heavy but they're not super heavy. They have some pretty high octane parts, but it's just really cool. And, and, and I, I can't, I don't even know how I would describe it. It's just really, really cool. Very unique sounding. I went, down, this, I went down a YouTube yeah. wormhole uh, about a month and a half ago, and I went and saw an El Nino concert from New Jersey. It was the show that they went on, that they did right before they went on tour. And uh, it was right when they had got signed to uh, Roadrunner. And then I forgot, totally forgot about the show. And I'm watching it on YouTube. And then my fat ass gets was it on in Roselle at the Cove. No, it was, was it at, at uh, it was at Chrome, which is the old club. Oh, club Chrome, yeah. And then uh, I, I look at the video and then my fat ass is on stage with them singing El Nino. And that was a very pleasant surprise that I forgot about that I actually did. So now my request to you is when you get back on stage and you're playing Ding Bats, you're playing somewhere around here. I am coming on stage and I am singing Step Into the Sideshow with you. Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, listen, listen, you know, like I barely sing that song anymore anyway. Like the crowd that most of the work now. I'm old. I can hold the microphone out there and be like, yo, if it's in New Jersey, I'm not singing. I'm like, here, come on, guys. I'll do like a couple of the first lines of each verse and this and that, and then I'm just here. That's fucking great. Max, well, please let us know yeah. when the new stuff comes out so we could promote it, then we can get the word out. You know, we really want to like, you know, you know, get, get, get it out and get, get people. Again, I think we're going to do things a little differently this time than we've done in the past. Um, meaning that 
We're going to set up like, you know, whether it's a, a Patreon or a this or a, or a Twitch or there's so many different ways that you can, you know, now set up like for subscriptions and, and monetize. And, you know, again, keep the price low. Like, you know, if people are subscribing on you know, me, you know, on $5 or less, you know, um, and, you know, for that subscription price, you know, I think, you know, maybe we can work some deals out where if you're going to be one of our subscribers, you know, you'll get the album, you know, you'll, you'll get whatever, how, however you want the album, you know, whether it be a digital copy, you know, a streamer, this, whatever you can, you know, get the album. You don't have to worry about it. It's part of the thing. And then we'll work something out where you get all sorts of like, you know, bonus content, you know? Um, and then on top of that, as opposed to, just, you know, maybe putting out a song, giving it a couple of months to build and then putting out a record. I think we're going to just drop a few singles like, and when I mean singles, I don't mean songs that are going to be radio friendly or this or that, just songs that we think are really strong that, that the people will like, and then, you know, through, you know, internet means we'll be able to push it, you know? And also if we're like, you know, if we have a decent amount of subscribers by the time the record's ready to come out, we're just going to use most of that money to keep pushing the record, making right. videos, you know, getting the record, you know, uh, and, and obviously if you want to, um, you know, those videos to get seen by a lot of people, you have to, you know, pay for advertising, you know, so doing stuff like that and, and then dropping a single, a single, a single, you know, and then maybe after three singles, you know, the record, the full record comes out, you know, get people's anticipation up, you know, it's the new, you, it's the new trend now. I mean, a lot of bands, so many bands are doing a machine heads doing it on Tuesday. They're putting out, you know, they're putting out their final fucking uh, single before they put the new album out. It's the new trend, you know? Well, the one guy who, who, from, from what I've seen has really f figured out in, in like the metal world, how to do it real well when it comes to like, his band having subscribers, you know, monthly subscribers and himself having monthly subscribers is, is, uh, Matt Heafy from, uh, mm -hmm. Trivium from Trivium. Yeah. Like that guy's got like, you know, a thousand, a couple thousand, you know, personal subscribers that are paying a few dollars a month just to follow him. Like he's making like probably, you know, five figures a month. <laughs> Just from yeah. people fucking looking at him on the internet. Crazy, right? People will pay for anything. Own band probably makes more than that, but they have to split it whatever four ways or so. You know, maybe he doesn't make quite as much as he does personally, but even from the band, he probably makes another, you know, several thousand dollars, like just from the internet. Yeah. Without even having to play an actual show it's or amazing, sell an actual album. It is like, amazing. This is the new, this is the new. The new thing. Yeah. Rock like from Machine, Head, Machine Head's doing it every Friday. He's doing run-throughs every single Friday. And he's making a lot of money on Facebook. Well, just on, doing that, on Facebook Live. That's what I think we're going to kind of gear towards. You know, and doing these kind of like, you know, invitation, you know, into our, you know, studio into our writing process into our recording process into that's the other thing i think we're going to try to like stream almost the entire recording process i think it's a, i think it's a hit i i think that's it's the way to go i think if people are 
you know, we're in a, we're in an age where we can literally go on our phones. It's not like 20 years ago when, you know, you had to buy the aquarium, you had to go to the shows and stuff like that. We can just pick up our phone and we can see whoever we want. And a lot of people want to see the ins and outs and the, of the backstage stuff and the production stuff and all the things that you would never normally see 20 years ago. There's a market for it. Um, and I, you wouldn't see all that stuff 20 years ago. No, but what we had 20 years ago was, was the infancy stage of this, which was at first it was message boards. Yep. Back in, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, and then 2002, MySpace came. And right. then MySpace changed the game. And, you know, by, you know, I mean, really right after MySpace was Facebook, but Facebook didn't really get popular until maybe 2005, 2006. And then the game completely changed by then. You know, and by 2008, nine, MySpace was dying and Facebook was taking over. And then Instagram followed in 2010. And uh, I don't remember when Twitter came out, but it was pretty much around that time, I think, right? 2010. Yeah, around there. You know, and, 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 and it's, that's what it's, it's been Facebook, Instagram, Twitter from basically, you know, 2010 until a couple of years ago and, you know, a few years ago when, you know, TikTok and Twitch and all these other different formats started popping up now. And, you know, I mean, look, I'm an old dude and, and it took me long enough to get, I didn't, I wasn't on Facebook until the end of 2009. You know, know, I didn't even start doing MySpace until my, (laughs) myself until like 2006 or seven. Really? Yeah. Like I was three, four years behind everyone in MySpace. Well, you, cause, cause you have a lot of good weed. That's that helps. That helps a lot. I know, but like, uh, you know, listen, some of us older cats, we missed the, we missed, we missed the boat a little bit. You know what I mean? We did. So. Listen, I want to, I want to say thank you. I really, um, you, you gave us a great interview as far as the inner workings of the, of the business end of music as well. Loved it. Loved it. But, uh, and that was one thing I was hoping to actually do. And I'm, I'm so happy the way this interview turned out. What are your social media handles? So uh, our listeners can follow you. Oh yeah, please. Uh, um, well, I mean, I actually, it's been so long since I, yeah, cause everything's done through my phones. I logged in, but I mean, just, you can just search Max Illage on Facebook. I have two pages. Um, you can friend request me on both. Both of them are nearly maxed out, but you can follow me on either one. Um, the main one is, uh, uh, the main one is I think a black and white picture of me. The, 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 the secondary one has like a red background in the profile picture. So, um, on Instagram, it's again, yeah, just, you know, um, at max Illage or I'm pretty sure. And then on Twitter, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is, but you can find me. They're all linked together, you know, all my pages. So like you can, and of course follow the band 40 below summer on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but yeah, I mean, I generally try to just, uh, uh, you know, be somewhat accessible. I'm not, you know, it's important. It really is. I'm, 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 no, but listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a little introverted. I'm, I'm a little, little private, um, in, in certain aspects. Um, like I'm, I don't do a lot of DMS. Like I, you know, I also, my, my messengers on both Facebook and Instagram are generally very backed up. So, you know, 
sometimes it takes me a little while to get the messages. Um, but if you generally, if you tag me, uh, I'll, I'll respond and, you know, and, you know, in a post or something or in a comment, I'll, I'll, I'll generally res- respond pretty quickly. Um, very cool. But again, again, you know, it's like, I always try to like, you know, be friendly and answer questions and, That's and, important. and, and, and it's not, and it's not like I'm, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm an older guy by comparison to these people, you know, a lot of these people on social media, I'm, I'm, I'm older than most, I think at this point, <laughs> you know, well, we're, about, we're about the same age. I'm 45. I'm a couple years older than you. Um, oh, okay. So just a couple. <laughs> just a few. He's, in, he's in my wheelhouse. He's far from your wheelhouse, Jeff. That was a fucking abacus. No, I'm not in my fifties. I'm still in my forties. I'm, I'm, I'm only, like I said, I'm only two years older than you. So I'm, I'm only 29. So yeah, I'm fucking, rough, Ju- I'm fucking Jupiter. Max, thank you so much life. for the interview. Uh, not man. a problem. You know, uh, I will tag you when it's out. And uh, I definitely am looking forward to the new music and catching some shows in the area when you guys are coming around. Yeah. And like I said, everybody just, you know, Max Illage, just all you got to do is search, search for me, you know, type in your search box on Google or I mean, on uh, Facebook or Instagram and I'll come right up and, you know, just give me a follow and, um, you know, follow the band and, you know, just check out what we're doing. And, uh, you know, any bands out there, you know, from the, from the basic regional area if you're interested in recording and you're interested in more no-nonsense recordings you know as opposed to like the you know chopped sliced and diced completely edited you know sounds this everything sounds the same now this is one of my problems like and and it's not the songs it's the production like production wise everything kind of sounds the same now yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, I miss kind of the, the organicness of the old recordings. And if anybody's interested in like those type of recordings, but listen, it's work. You're sure. not going to be like, you can't like come into my place and, and, and not be able to play, you know, like I'm not an editing guy, you know, and if, if you can't play your parts, you're going to have to pay for someone to edit them before I mix <laughs> it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, and don't get me wrong. I have editing guys, you know, that I, you know, that I'll pay out of a, certain budget but if it goes beyond that budget or time you're gonna have to pay extra for for editing because i like to do things a little more organic yes i will still use modern technology utilize modern technology and as far as you know you know using uh uh you know amp guitar amp simulators along with real amps those actually using real amplifiers along with simulators to get a blended sound and using real drums along with the drum triggers that everyone use nowadays to get like a more organic but still modern sound you know and it's it's an interesting process i have a lot of really cool old analog gear and um it's, it's, it's fun, but you know, if anybody's interested in a more old school kind of, you know, process, hit me up. And uh, other than that, you know, it's all about music and, you know, and, and just, you know, having a, a good time doing what you love and expressing yourself. And, um, you know, that's what we do. That's what we've always done. And, you know, hopefully moving forward, that's what we'll continue, continue to do. I have Good. full faith. Listen, guys, thank you so much for this interview. And uh, oh, please, thank you for having thank us. You. And thank you that after all these years, that there's still you know people who care. <laughs> Big time. Uh, thank you, guys. We will see you next week. Have a great one.
Bye, everybody. Excellent. Bye. Take care, brothers. Later.